Hey everyone, it's Catherine. We have a really exciting interview today that's hosted by Mai Tong Ying. So this is her first time hosting and she did a great job. Mai Tong interviewed a member of the Southeast Asia Resource Action Center, aka CIRAC. This organization focuses mainly on civil rights for Cambodian, Laotian, and Vietnamese Americans. One quick note here, Mai Tong doesn't have a fancy microphone like I do, so the audio quality does sound like a recorded phone call, but I promise you the conversation is so worth it and so informative that you'll get pulled in right away. Okay, I'll let my tongue take it from here. My name is Mai Tong, and I'm part of the Dubai Family Podcast. And I came across CRAC many, many years ago when I first interned in Washington, D.C. And I knew at the back of my mind that CRAC will circle back to me. And now it's just an opportunity to amplify your mission and to also learn more about how, how we can uplift basically what you're advocating for. Because our podcast, what we're about is pushing towards family reunification. So. Everyone, welcome Kam Mua. He is the Director of National Policy at the Southeast Asia Resource Action Center. Kam has a CREX policy portfolio through policy analysis, community engagement, and legislative and regulatory advocacy. Yeah. Um, so again, my name is Kam. I am the Director of National Policy at CREX. You know, I've been at the organization for almost three years at this point. And, you know, I, um, I started off as their immigration policy advocate and then now uh, director of national policy. And really a, a large part of my work is still around their uh, immigration policy advocacy. You know, a little bit about myself. I'm a 1.5 generation Hmong American. I was born in a Thai refugee camp. And, you know, my parents uh, resettled in the U.S. in uh, 1989. And so we've been here since I was uh, an infant. Uh, so regarding CRAC, our, our mission is uh, to empower Cambodian, Laotian, and Vietnamese American communities to create a socially just and equitable society. We know that as the representatives of the largest refugee community ever resettled in the United States, we need to come together with other refugee communities, communities of color, and social justice movements in pursuit of social equity. You know, we serve specifically folks who came to the U.S. from Laos, from Cambodia and from Vietnam who share a refugee experience. You know, we define Southeast Asian as a geopolitical identity associated with the escape from uh, from the region between the, the 1970s and, and today. You know, the organization started in 1979 really to help push and pass the Refugee Resettlement Act. And it started as the Indochina Refugee Action Center, so IRAC um, at the time. And in the, you know, in the 90s, the organization rebranded to the Southeast Asia Resource Action Center. Our mission has since changed a little bit more as well. You know, rather than just focusing on the resettlement of refugees, I mean, since number of refugees who've come from Southeast Asia have trickled down, quite honestly, our, our mission has also shifted to you know, help the individuals who have resettled uh, empower themselves and their lives here. So the work that we do now encompasses immigration policy to reunite families, education policy to reform our system and our education for our, our young people and, and healthcare reform and, and mental health support. So that's what we do. 
as an organization, we're a national advocacy-based organization, so we don't provide direct services to folks, but we serve as a nexus for our local community partners and state partners and the federal beltway system and help navigate DC for them. You know, our role really is to do policy analysis, to engage with electeds and to bring the the voices and the stories of our communities directly to, to policymakers to ensure that they are able to make informed policy decisions and to really create the sort of change that will allow our communities to thrive in the U.S. You, you mentioned that you basically serve as a nexus in, in like an information hub for uh, individuals. And so I'm curious if in your personal experience and professional experience, if there has been stories from individuals who have been directly impacted from the help or from the resources from CRAC, and if you could share that with us and in, in our audience. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't generally work super closely with individuals. I mean, I, you know, like I said, we're not a direct service organization. We're also not a legal organization. And so we generally will refer individuals who contact us out to our partners who have more experience doing direct anti-deportation work. But that said, you know, CRAC offers our communication support and technical assistance to uh, individuals who are trying to, and campaigns are trying to stop the detention or deportation of their their loved ones. So a really great example is in 2017, uh, 2016, 2017, our organization, we worked with the individuals who were trying to release eight Cambodian Americans who are being detained by Immigration and Customs Enforcement in Minnesota, which are now formed as an organization called the Release Minnesota Eight. And, you know, what our organization did was connect them with other national organizations that could provide direct support for them. We went on ground to help them mobilize, put together their campaigns, build support with their members of Congress that they're working on and provide training and support for those individuals. You know, ultimately, they were able to get a few of the folks who were detained at the time released. And so that's really some of the the more sort of direct work that we do. Like I said, you know, the bulk of our work really is providing information, resources, and connecting organizations and local advocates with their electeds and their stories with elected. So, you know, on that end, we mostly work with organizations locally and at the state level rather than with direct individuals, mostly just because we don't have a ton of capacity to do direct service work. Right. And I did see that on your website, a lot of resources and information about basically school to prison to deportation pipeline, which kind of encompasses, not encompasses what you said, but basically um, kind of a stem of what you mentioned about deportation. I'm curious if you could share more about either the school to to prison, to deportation pipeline, or in, um, there's another term that I came across, crime migration. Uh, they might be two separate things, but if you could address both or uh, one of them. Yeah, they're explicitly related, actually. Um, so when we talk about the school to prison to deportation pipeline, this was particularly relevant in the 90s for Southeast Asian American communities. It's less so now because more of our population are naturalized or, or native born citizens. And so we don't see it as much. But in the 90s, we saw a huge influx of APIs who were caught up in the criminal legal system. Uh, although the data is is very limited, we know that there was an over 700% increase in 
APIs who were imprisoned between 1977 and the 1990s. We also know that in the 90s, Asian American and Pacific Islander youth were twice as likely to be tried as adults compared to what their white counterparts. And we also know that in certain places in California, Cambodian, Laotian, and Vietnamese youth were detained and arrested at higher rates given their population. And so, you know, we know that youth were heavily impacted by the tough on crime era, the war on drugs, and the prison boom of the 90s. And that's generally what we mean when we say the school to prison pipeline, right? Like in school punishment, and the rise of like police in schools, leading to these individuals ending up in juvenile detention, leading them to get contact with the criminal legal system, which then oftentimes made them removable. Many of the individuals that we and our partners work with today are individuals who were convicted as adults while they were juveniles and who are now facing removal like 20, 30 years later. Crimmigration is is the sort of catch-all term. It really just means the criminal legal system and the immigration system. The idea with crimmigration is that the criminal legal system has direct impacts on the immigration system. And so those individuals, when we're looking at the criminal legal system and the laws there, they have a direct impact on how folks will be processed through the immigration system, whether or not they'll have access to relief, whether or not they'll face removal for coming to contact with the criminal legal system. You know, depending on the sorts of convictions that they have, they may not think at the time of sentencing that they'd be removable, but they are removable, right? And so that's that's really what we say when we mean the crimmigration, right? That these folks, you know, if they come into contact with the system, will likely, very likely come into contact with the other system as well. One of the things that come to mind is like, um, I was curious, why so... Why is it so prevalent in the Southeast Asian American community? Is it because of being historically displaced? Um, and then, you know, once moving to America, we're still displaced in a different way. Do you have any insight as to why it's so prevalent? And maybe has it changed during, I don't want to say modern times, but has it changed to this very day? Or are the stories still very similar? Yeah, so so it's definitely changed. And I think the reason why it's changed is because there are just more individuals now who are naturalized and who are U.S. citizens and therefore cannot be removed for convictions. I think that's one of the big things. But we see similarities in other communities, like the Burmese community and other recent refugee arrivals, like Somali communities. You know, part of the reason... And, you know, I can't say this in any definitive way, quite honestly, but, you know, based on our just our work over the, the last few decades, you know, we know that when Southeast Asian Americans were resettled in the U.S., they came with various English proficiency levels, educational backgrounds and wealth. You know, oftentimes very little wealth or not at all, very little English proficiency, very little education. And for a lot of our communities, they weren't really allowed to come together was the other big piece. The U.S. at the time had a policy of disbursement in the ways that they resettled refugees. So the idea was that they were going to disperse as many refugees as possible in order to force assimilation. And because funding for refugee resettlement was tied to location rather than individual, once these refugees began to engage in what we call secondary migration to either move to be closer with family or to be closer with larger enclaves, the financial support for those families dried up. 
quite honestly. And so, you know, what ended up happening was a lot of Southeast Asian Americans ended up living in very low income, over police neighborhoods with very little access to benefits, partially because of the 1994 welfare reform bill as well. And then on top of that, you know, you have these families who, you know, had very little access, very little support, whose parents had to work multiple jobs, whose kids had to figure out how to survive for themselves, quite honestly. And, you know, it just sort of led to a situation where we saw a, a number of Southeast Asian youth and, you know, young adults get involved in criminal activity, be it for survival reasons or for, well, mostly survival reasons. You know, some of the folks that we met, I mean, they became involved in gangs as a form of self-protection because of the constant sort of bullying and you know harassment that they faced others did it because you know it was to build a sense of community and bonding and home that they couldn't you know find because their families were often gone because they were working and trying to provide for their families so you know there was a variety of reasons what we can say is that the laws in the early 90s early and mid 90s really contributed to and really exasperated the situation that these families were in you know i think had the welfare reform bill not impacted our communities so poorly we probably would have seen things go a little bit differently there were a variety of reasons why our communities became involved with the criminal legal system, but ultimately, you know, that involvement with the criminal legal system now are making so uh, you know then made them removable, and now those those individuals, 20, 30 years later, have families and have lives and are now being sort of uprooted completely because the Department of Homeland Security is now trying to to remove them or trying to remove them after like two decades of like not doing anything. Right. And to follow off of that, we saw that during the Trump administration, there was an increase in active effort to deport specifically refugees who were detained from the Southeast Asian American communities. And do you know why there was an increase during the administration? Do you see that there has been a decrease with the new Biden administration? We don't have enough information to be able to make an assessment under the Biden administration. So I'll start there. We just don't have enough data. We don't, you know, we don't know and we can't say for certain whether or not there have been changes. Under the Biden administration, we've heard of one flight that happened in in March with about 31 Vietnamese Americans, but we haven't heard of any major raids like we have had during the Trump administration or any other flights so far. So it's hard for us to say one way or the other. I will say that part of the reason why there were so many removals in the Trump administration was just that the administration tried to remove really everyone. You know, they made large scale efforts to just increase their removal efforts. We saw a 251% increase in removals of Cambodians between 2017 and 2018. And this was largely because the Department of Homeland Security placed visa sanctions on Cambodia in 20, well, it was either 2016 and 2017 in an effort to force that country to repatriate more individuals. You know, really, you know, under the Trump administration, we saw them go after or bully countries in ways that we hadn't seen any other administration do. The visa sanctions actually hadn't been, had only been employed once prior to that, and that was in 2003 under the Bush administration on, against Guyana. Prior to that, no other instances of the visa sanctions had ever been used. And, you know, under Trump, and we just saw multiple Southeast Asian and African countries sanctioned. So, you know, countries like Laos, 
Burma, uh, Sierra Leone, Burundi, those countries were also placed on the sanctions list with Laos being the most egregious sanctions that we've seen to date. We also saw an increase in removals of, of Vietnamese Americans, and this generally has to do with the fact that the Trump administration also tried to remove pre-95 Vietnamese Americans who had generally been protected from removal by the bilateral agreement between Vietnam and the U.S. from 2008. We you know, didn't see any major changes in the removal patterns for Hmong, Laotian, Yemen, and other other ethnic groups from Laos. Um, but that's just because the, you know, the the removals of that population have, has generally been around five to nine individuals per fiscal year. And so there wasn't any major change, at least that we saw. But, you know, it didn't mean that the Trump administration didn't put immense pressure on, on Laos to remove people back. And you, um, you said a word that really, um, the word repatriate. And I'm not sure if you had ever talked to anyone uh, that has been impacted. Do you know what that would look like to be repatriated back to a country that maybe you've never known before and that you came here as a young child and all your whole life, you've just known how to be an American? Yeah, I mean, you know, the... Individuals who are deported back to to another country generally face a litany of challenges and barriers. I mean, they don't, they aren't able to to take anything with them, right? They have literally just the clothes on their back when they were detained. And, you know, a lot of these individuals are culturally American, and so it's extremely difficult for them to adjust to where they're deported to or they're repatriated to. So. And it's it's extremely obvious to individuals that these are Americans and not really like, you know, folks who are culturally from the country, right? They're generally a little bit bigger, you know, generally a little bit taller. There's a physiological difference, but there, there's also just a difference in, in the way that they engage with people as well. Um, and I think the other thing that, you know, a, a lot of these folks also have tattoos, which also really uh, differentiates them physically from like other Cambodians or other Vietnamese or Laotians who are who were born and raised in that country. You know, some of these folks don't speak the language, and so they are unable to communicate. They have no finances. Some of them have a really difficult time finding jobs because of the stigma that comes from being deported back and the assumption that it's related to crime. And you know. It, Oftentimes for Southeast Asians, about 80% of folks who are deported are, you know, some contact with the criminal legal system. And so, you know, there's also a, a, a stigma that is attached to a lot of these individuals. In certain countries, like in Laos, you know, we don't have a ton of cases that we are actively involved in. But, you know, what we've heard is that these individuals have a hard time even getting identification. So they're unable to even, you know, get an ID from either the Laos government or, you know, support from the U.S. embassy there. And so a lot of these folks end up living in limbo in those other countries and uh, in the countries that were patriotic too. And this doesn't, you know, account for the toll that it places on their, their families here in the U.S. For a lot of these people, you know, they end up, they usually are the primary breadwinners in their families. Some of them are caretakers for their elderly parents. You know, a lot of them have really strong ties to their community. And generally when, when they're deported, you know, we see a massive drop off in income for their families. You know, oftentimes these are already low income families and you take their primary breadwinner away and these families fall further into poverty. Some of them facing homelessness 
food insecurity. And we also see just negative impacts on their children as well with, you know, some young folks telling us about how they are unable to plan for the future because they don't know when their, you know, their parents are going to be removed. Studies have shown that children often have increased rates of PTSD, anxiety, and depression as a result of uh, detention and removals. And generally, it just heavily impacts just everyone. You know, deportation is never about just the individual. There is generally large-scale impact families and, and the communities that they're from as a whole. And, you know, again, a big part of this is because these individuals became removable in the 90s. And three decades later, ICE is now trying to deport them. And that's been three decades for them, two, three decades for them to create their families, to readjust their lives, to turn things around. That's basically leads to the the next question of like, in your experience, what has successful family reunions or reunification look like in specifically in the Southeast Asian American community? I mean, you know, successful reunification is, is when our partners are able to get individuals out of them immigration and customs detention. There have been a few cases over the last two, three years, but, you know, where six Cambodian uh, individuals were able to return to the U.S. because of some of the, uh, the legal work that our partners at, you know, organizations like Advancing Justice ALC, Release Minnesota 8, you know, have been able to to accomplish and, and get these individuals returned back. But the reality is that for a lot of these individuals, you know, they're reuniting with their families, but their families have also moved on while they were deported, right? Like time doesn't stay still for any of them. Their children have grown older, you know, maybe there were strains on their marriages. And so those things may have shifted dramatically there. You know, these individuals come back to the U.S. They have no support or they have very little support. They have very little financial support. They have to struggle again because they were uprooted once and then they get uprooted a second time. And now they're trying to just figure out how to sort of readjust their lives here. So, you know, I think it's it's difficult either way. I mean, the, the reunification is always a beautiful thing. And I think everyone who's come back is is appreciative of it and glad to be able to finally reunite with their, their families. But there are significant challenges in the way that things have changed for them, too, just because they've been away from their families for so long. Yeah, I, I bet um, I myself have heard some personal stories and I think it's just challenging to, again, rebuild your life because like what you said, you've been uprooted and then to do it a second time, it's just, I can't even imagine what that is like. Um, but I think that when you're speaking of family, I was um, curious if you could share more about maybe a projection of what either you or CRAC thinks in terms of family unification policy moving forward with the new administration. What do you hope for? You know, one of our major initiatives has been to stop the detentions and the deportations of Southeast Asian Americans. Um, I think that's what we're trying to accomplish with this administration. You know, we We've met with the Department of Homeland Security. We've met with Immigration and Customs Enforcement. We've met with other administrative officials to talk about how Immigration and Customs Enforcement agents in their, uh, how they need to apply um, prosecutorial discretion and, you know, not detain, not remove individuals who 
you know, meet specific kinds of criteria, you know, individuals who have old convictions, right, who are being removed for like decades old convictions, individuals who have U.S. family, individuals who came to the U.S. as refugees, individuals who are deportable because of domestic violence or uh, who are survivors of abuse, you know, individuals who were adopted into the U.S., and, and so on, right? Individual primary caregivers. So, you know, part of our, our conversation right now has been trying to get the administration to adopt some of those suggestions in their final guidance to their appeal agents. There are two immigration laws from 1996 that serve as the backbone for our immigration enforcement system. They were particularly egregious uh, and rushed. And, you know, what they did was that they created automatic deportations, mandatory detention, restricted the ability of judges to take into consideration the mitigating factors of someone's life, and they were retroactive in their application. They also, you know, expanded what crimes were deportable. So someone may have had a conviction in like 1992 or not removable, and then when the laws weren't being implemented, suddenly found themselves deportable. And so, you know, they are part of the reason why our enforcement system looks the way it does today. You know, we have been part of a long-standing coalition to address those laws and to really quite frankly just try to repeal as much of them as possible because of how just overreaching they are. Some of the other things that we're looking to try and do this Congress is to lift the visa sanctions completely on Cambodia, on Laos, and on, you know, all the other African and Southeast Asian countries. You know, I mentioned it before, but the visa sanctions on Laos in particular are, are extremely concerning because they are effectively an immigration ban. The sanctions on Laos prevent the U.S. Embassy in Vietnam from processing any immigration applications, period. So that means, you know, no one can come to the U.S. from Laos through the family immigration system or through the fiancé visa system or, or through the employment system or, or really any process that has any permanency to it, it's the only one that's really still in effect. And, you know, that's been one of our major pushes right now, too, with the administration. Um, so that those are two of the things that we're, we're looking to do. There's a litany of other things that we're trying to do. I mean, CRAC, you know, help reintroduce the New Way Forward Act, which is the most robust bill that restores due process back to our immigration system that's ever been introduced. You know, we're still constantly trying to build support for that bill in Congress. So, we're looking to do a whole bunch of stuff. And, and you know, I think the other thing with our organization too, and, be, and with this issue in particular, is that it, it can be difficult for policymakers to support it. And, you know, one of the major things that we've been trying to do is to just prevent Congress from trying to enact legislation that would, you know, further harm immigrants who have had contact with the criminal legal system. So that means trying to prevent them from including any new grounds for why people should be deported or become inadmissible, while also pushing for immigration issues that are really important to some of the other people within our communities, like trying to create a pathway to citizenship for undocumented immigrants or trying to, you know, find ways to streamline the family immigration system. What can individuals like myself or listeners do to either somehow help or get involved, especially for those who just uh, has never had experience with the immigration system or with advocacy generally, what would you recommend? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the easiest way is to really just contact their member of Congress and tell them that you want them to stop Southeast deportation. Members of Congress hear uh, often from people who oppose immigration in many forms, but they often don't hear enough from people who are supportive. So that's that's one key thing. If they're a member of the House, you can always tell them to the co-sponsor the New Way Forward Act, which again is the most robust bill addressing the immigration enforcement system ever. Individuals can sign on to a petition that's being led by the Southeast Asian Anti-Deportation Network. So it's a petition that CRAC is supportive of. It's being led by our partners. And, you know, that petition is asking the Department of Homeland Security and the president to lift the sanctions on Laos, on Cambodia, and on Southeast Asian and African countries. And quite frankly, I mean, you know, the more noise that we're able to make about this, the better. I mean, I think if folks can, you know, want to do a letter campaign or or send letters to the president or to the Homeland Security about how important this issue is, you know, I think that's, it's all worthwhile. Thanks so much for listening. If you're interested in hearing more stories of family separation, you can follow us on social media at Divided Families Podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us on Apple Podcasts and you can subscribe or follow wherever you prefer to listen. Thanks as always to Flannel Albert for that wonderful theme music and see you next time.